Colossians 4, uh, picking up uh, in verse 14 this morning. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And I say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, this holy history recorded here was written down for our instruction. Just as much as the history of the Old Testament was written for our instruction. These people that we are reading about are examples to us, us to upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, of pleasure, and idolatry. But they also remind us that you are a faithful God. Texts like these are one way in which you guard us from such temptations. And so now instruct us that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's certain moments in life that you remember, and one of the moments in life that I remember was when I started my academic career at Boston University. And the reason I remember it is because the president of the university addressed us as we all sat there. And one of the things that John Silber said to us was, take a look around. Notice the people beside you, in front of you, next to you, behind you. Of those four people, at least one of them is not going to finish. He gave us a warning from the get-go that not everyone who matriculated at that university or any university was not going to finish the race that they began. And I see that sort of as uh, an apt metaphor. I was one of the people that finished that race. Um, But an apt metaphor, I think, for the, the Christian life. For there are going to be many who seem on the surface to begin that race, but who never finish that race. As we look at these people that we find here in the greeting section of Colossians, I want us to keep in mind something from Colossians chapter 2 that I believe helps us to make sense of what we're going to talk about. Colossians 2 verse 6 reads, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding and thanksgiving. So Paul's reminding them of the gospel they received from the mouth of Epaphras, this, this, uh, these things that they were taught, how they were established in the faith. And, and Paul reminds them that 
as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, and so they've, they entered that race through faith in Jesus Christ, that begins us, that, that sort of joins us into this participation in the race, but I'll remind you that it is a, not a race in which there is a winner. It's one of those races like the fundraiser, 5K kinds of things, where the goal is to finish, not to win. Okay? And so in the same way that we received him by faith, we are to also walk in him by faith. But the key here we see is that phrase, in him, walk in him, built up in him. That idea of the vital union with Jesus Christ that we've been talking about that it is out of that vital union that flow the power and the strength we need to keep walking the race until it's done. He has the resources that we need to finish it. The big idea this morning is that we need Jesus to be faithful to the end. And some of these people we're going to look at were faithful to the end, and some of them were not. And the key as to whether or not they were was whether they continued to walk in that vital union with Jesus Christ by faith. Let's start with Luke. For Luke, I've basically summed up as staying the course by the grace of God. Luke, or Lucas, as it is in the Greek, means light-giving, which I guess is an appropriate name for someone who wrote a gospel In the book of Acts, he is described by Paul as the great, uh, sorry, the beloved physician. And so uh, Paul's heart was moved toward this brother Luke. He had a great fondness and affection for him in Jesus Christ, which is appropriate precisely because he is with Paul in Rome, not just in Rome, but visiting Paul in prison. There's no sense that he himself is imprisoned, but he stands steadfast by Paul and was likely a house arrest. Oddly to me, anyway, John Calvin seems to think that this is a different Luke than the one that we find everywhere else in Scripture. I'm not not convinced by his arguments. In fact, he doesn't really provide any arguments for this. I think the very end of the book of Acts, which which has Luke uh, journeying from uh, Jerusalem to Rome with Paul, is a good indication to me that this is the Paul who wrote Luke and Acts. But we see that this Luke, therefore, was a faithful member of Paul's missionary team. He not only went on the journeys, but he began to record their journeys. Luke remained with Paul even while he was in prison, writing this particular letter. It's possible that he was the one who actually served as the scribe or the recorder or the manuasis for Paul. He's the one who actually wrote it, but Paul told him what to write. You'll notice the very last verse says, See, I write this greeting in my own hand, an indication that Paul did not physically write the rest of the letter. He had someone write it for him. He dictated it. Okay, And it's very possible that it was Luke, probably in training for when he starts to write his own gospel. I'm not sure. We see later on from 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful 
to me for ministry. And so at some point in prison in Rome, and some people think this was a second imprisonment, uh, we have no biblical um, justification for that view, although it's possible. Um, But I would imagine that Luke, who was with Paul, would somehow maybe continue to write Acts to include that one. That's my personal viewpoint on this. But Luke is the only one who was with Paul when he writes 2 Timothy. No one else was there. And so we see that Luke is one who persevered in the faith. He stuck by Paul, though life and ministry was difficult. He essentially pens Paul's gospel. The reason why we accept Luke and Acts as Scripture is because of his connection with the Apostle Paul. So it's essentially sort of Paul's gospel. And of him, the following from Philippians, I think it would be true. Paul told the Philippians that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's he's writing there to encourage the Philippians that if God truly has begun this work in them, that he is the one, if he began it, he's going to bring it to completion. Just as we see in Colossians and in Galatians, the, the idea of Christianity is not God beginning this work and then you on your own, or maybe with a little bit of assistance from Jesus, complete the work, but it is God's work from beginning to end. And so one way in which we can characterize this doctrine called the the, uh, perseverance of the saints is also the preservation of the saints. Because it is God who is preserving them, who is working in them. This is further clarified in chapter 2 of Philippians, where Paul says to them, talking about their obedience and how he wants them to grow in obedience, he says, For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. And so not only is God preserving, but we also see that God is working in the heart of the Christian, in the will of a Christian, to do the things that are necessary to persevere in the faith. And so when we look at Luke's life and we see the fact that he persevered, our praise does not go to Luke, what a great guy Luke is. Our praise goes to God because it is God who has preserved and worked in Luke to bring him to that faithful completion of the race which he ran. It will be the same for any of you who complete the race. We will give thanks and praise, not to you, but to our God who preserved you through many afflictions and trials, possibly doubts and certainly fears. Peter speaks of this as well in the first chapter of his first letter, talking to them as though those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The key part there is God is guarding them by His power, but through their faith. Our responsibility within this is to trust Him. Not trust Him to do what we think should happen, but to trust Him. Who He is, His character, 
that his, he is wise beyond us and that what he does is always right, though it may seem hard. And so we see that Luke was preserved by God's power through faith in the Christ that Paul preaches, Jesus, supreme and sufficient. And so those rooted and established in Christ will continue to walk in Christ. Let's move to the next person we see, Demas. Demas deserting Christ for this world. As Paul writes Colossians, Demas is by his side. Demas is part of his ministry team. Demas, for all appearances, was a faithful servant of Christ. He's with Paul in prison. Again, not imprisoned himself, but he's there serving with Paul, though he is in prison. But by the time we get to the writing of 2 Timothy, that has all changed. For Paul writes, right before he says, Luke is the only one with me, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. How that must have broken Paul's heart to write that sentence. For just like Paul had a affection for Luke, I am sure he had a great affection for Demas. And yet Demas deserted Paul. He abandoned him. He left him essentially helpless except for the assistance of Luke. He left him in prison for something else. Now, Let's note, there was someone else that we've talked about earlier, a couple weeks ago. And that person is John Mark. Okay? Now, in Acts, when it talks about how John Mark left in the middle of the first missionary journey, it's a different word that's used. One that is just simply means to depart, to leave. There's, no, there's not a negative connotation that goes with the word. But this time, the word has that negative connotation of deserting someone, leaving them high and dry, much like a a man who runs away, deserts his wife, leaves her helpless and abandoned. It's that kind of word. So Demas' actions were far more serious than Mark's actions. Why is it that Demas deserted Paul? Paul gives us the authoritative opinion, interpretation rather. He was in love with this present age. That's why he left. He had the very thing that the Apostle John would warn the audience of his first letter about. He had a love for the world and the things in the world. There are times when the allure of the world is so great. Let us remember from the reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 
that no temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. And so all of us will experience in varying degrees and at different times the allure of the world. If we want to, for those of you who have read uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, okay, if you haven't read that, find a good English, tran- modern English translation so you actually understand what's going on um, and read that. And there's this one section, of course, this is the, the, the journey from the cross to the celestial city. And there's one time he's going through the town and experiences or has to go through Vanity Fair. And that's the key thing. He can't avoid Vanity Fair. He must go through it. He must experience the temptations of Vanity Fair. The, and that, that's an appropriate word. It's, because it's all vanity. It's empty. It's nothing. It's the, it's the, meant to represent the pleasures of the world, the enticements of the world. Uh, similar to Ulysses having to go by the island of the sirens and their call, you know, and he wants to hear the beauty of their voices that have caused so many to shipwreck. Pilgrim must go through Vanity Fair. Not one of us can avoid that same thing. We live in the world, though we're called to not be of the world. We will experience temptations, whether it's through magazines, the internet, the TV, your neighbor, whatever it is. We will all experience these temptations to depart from Christ or think we can have both Christ and the world. Because they appeal to the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And John wants them to remember that this world is passing away along with his desires. Those, those earthly desires we feel are temporary. But he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so the blessings that were promised in Christ are not temporary. They're not just earthly. They are eternal and abiding. And that's part of what we need to meditate upon when we experience the deceitful pleasures or desires of sin. That, that what we're being offered in Vanity Fair is temporary. It's not going to last. It may be pleasurable for a short period of time, but that time is short. Let us hold out for a better thing, an eternal thing, an unchanging inheritance that is kept safe for us, as Peter says, where moth and rust cannot destroy it, disease cannot claim it. And so this, with Demas, is a stark warning against apostasy the deserting of Christ for something else. And the people, okay, they don't know, they don't know this and they don't know what's going to happen to Demas, okay? But there, the, the, the original audience in, in the Colossae is in the same kind of boat as Demas because they're being seduced by false teaching, a worldly kind of religion. And so they're faced, am I going to leave Christ for this, or am I going to try and somehow integrate Christ into this, which is what they were trying to do, or am I going to stay faithful to Christ, which is what Paul was calling them to do? 
Demas was at the same intersection, but it was slightly different. It was not a false religion, but it was probably more the comforts and pleasures of this present age. I remember one young man who I believed I had led to Christ years and years ago, knowing the heartbreak of Paul when, it was, when he announced that he was going to marry a Jehovah's Witness. For him, it was marriage that was greater than Jesus. And we all have that thing that rivals Jesus for our heart and affections. The visible church then and now was just like the post-Exodus Israel, just like Judas. Ademus here appeared to believe. He was part of the visible church. We would have looked at him and said initially, hey, good guy, loves Jesus. But just being a part of the visible church does not mean that you are actually saved and converted. Just because a child stands next to me doesn't mean it's my child. And so there were those who stand near Jesus, so to speak, by standing near the church, but they're not actually part of the church. The flesh, unfortunately, can produce a counterfeit faith, one that is the result of not being born again of imperishable seed, but more one of convenience and earthly desires. Such a counterfeit faith uses Christ usually to get something. And so this, this faith, I use that term loosely, uses Jesus, sees Jesus more as their servant and sort of the genie in the bottle, that if I have Jesus, my life is going to work out the way I want it to work out. I'll get the spouse that I want to get, or the kind of job I want to get, or the kind of lifestyle I want to get. Whatever the ores are, we can, we're, we're good at creating, multiplying different ores. The key is using Jesus as our servant instead of seeing Jesus as our Lord, whom we serve. And so a counterfeit faith is is partially identified by that sort of demanding things of Jesus as opposed to serving Jesus and receiving things from Jesus. These people who have this counterfeit faith don't walk in Christ precisely because they do not have a Jesus-centered faith. In other words, they've never actually begun the race. Does the name Rosie Ruiz ring any bells with anybody in this room? Nobody remembers Rosie Ruiz. Ah, good. Jerry remembers Rosie Ruiz. 1980, Boston Marathon. Rosie Ruiz crosses the finish line first. She sets a Boston Marathon record. She sets, uh, she has the third fastest women's time in any marathon in the world. It's amazing. 
It was. <laughs> they started to evaluate things, and the other women who were running their waist don't remember her ever passing them. She didn't seem to be completely exhausted when she got to the finish line. Her thighs didn't look like someone who would race that competitively. (laughs) Things started to add up, and they realized that she actually cheated. She started the race. She snuck out of the race, probably took the subway or a taxi cab. As it turns out, um, the qualifying race was the New York City Marathon, and and she actually did ride the subway for that one. Okay, so she was illegally in the race in Boston. So it's not the only time she cheated on a, in a marathon. Snuck in somewhere near the finish line and ran through to break the tape. It was not her race. And there are some who are not really, they look like they're on the race course, but they're really not on the race course because they have not really trusted in Christ and him crucified. The Jesus they say they believe is not the Jesus that we find here in Colossians. It is a counterfeit Jesus. It is, in a sense, a weak, servile Jesus. We must take heart from what we read in 1 Corinthians about how those, again, remember, brought out of Egypt, and yet so many of them, because they forsook God for earthly pleasures, were laid low in the desert. And that's not the only place that talks about this. Jude, verse, hold on my eyes, 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And so he, he saved, so to speak, he brought all of the visible church that was Israel out of Egypt, but there were many within that visible church who didn't believe, and Jude says he destroyed them in the wilderness. Jesus. Okay? Jesus can be dangerous. Be gone with a soft, cuddly Jesus. Also, in Hebrews 3, we read this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any uh, of you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. Again, the issue is unbelief. Leading you to to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's teaching about the preservation and perseverance of the saints. And part of the means of that was to exhort one another every day. Now, I'm sure that Paul exhorted Demas on a regular basis. I'm sure he could see Demas getting more and more uncomfortable and then looking like that look in his eye that he probably saw similar to Mark. He's going to go. Sometimes we as pastors know something's not right. 
We don't always, we're not always able to put our finger on it. But he probably knew something was not right, and he would plead, I'm sure, with with Demas. He would exhort him to fix his eyes upon Christ. But Demas still went. So perseverance, or rather, time reveals a counterfeit faith for what it is—an attempt to use Jesus. Thirdly. More quickly, Laodicea. I'm not a Journey fan, but the song Don't Stop Believing" came to my mind. <laughs> Paul's comments about Laodicea are actually pretty interesting. Why is, he sending, why is he asking the Colossians to greet the Laodiceans when Paul has written a letter to the Laodiceans? Maybe it's not really about Paul. Maybe it's about the Colossians and the Laodiceans, two cities which were relatively close in proximity, and actually he wanted those churches through this communication with each other, this interaction with each other as they exchanged letters that Paul wrote. He wanted them to enjoy fellowship with each other. Perhaps, I imagine, these two churches had received some of the same false teaching, which is why we don't see Hierapolis listed. That was probably didn't have the false teaching that that, uh, these other two churches did. But he wants them to kind of draw together around Christ, not Paul, to encourage one another, to love each other, to serve one another. Now, as Presbyterians, that should make us go, yes, that's right. We're supposed to do that kind of stuff. We're connected. We have sister churches that we should love and we should serve and we enjoyed fellowship with with Dove Mountain. That was a good thing. It wasn't meant to be sort of a an exception to how we do things. It, it really ought to be the the rule for the normalcy for how we do things. Warm relationships with other churches that are like-minded. We see someone listed here. We're not sure if it's a man or a woman. Different texts, uh, variant texts will have a masculine form and some will have a, a, a feminine form, and it's most likely that it's the feminine form, a she. Nympha had a, ho- a church that met in her home. Interesting. There in Laodicea, One of the churches met in Nympha's home. She was most likely a wealthy widow. I say wealthy because she had a large enough home to uh, basically uh, extend hospitality to the the church there that was meeting. Okay. I say uh, widow precisely because um, the husband's not listed. And so most likely her husband passed away so that she is the head of the household now. She is the one who is inviting the church in because she is a member of the church. This, I think, is incredibly significant for us because one of the things I hear from um, our non-complementarian brothers and sisters is the charge that Essentially, that if a woman can't be an elder in the church, she, it's as if she can't have any ministry in the church, which kind of surprises me to no end. Uh, I, I don't understand that whatsoever. 
This woman, though she was not an elder in the church, had a very significant ministry in the church. She welcomed it into her home. She provided the space. Who knows what else she provided there through her hospitality. But that church isn't meeting without Nympha. It's not about her baking cookies. It's her serving Christ. And so here we have a faithful servant of Christ listed, who's not an officer in the church, but a faithful servant of the church. What happened with Laodicea? It didn't go well. In Revelation 3, we see that Jesus rebukes them. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Something went wrong in the church of Laodicea. They had essentially uh, stopped recognizing the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus and had fallen into a trap very similar to that of Demas. Like him, they were distracted and in danger. And so we see that perseverance is not just for individuals. Churches must continue to walk in Christ. Which brings us to our fourth Archippus. And there's an encouragement to Archippus to keep your hand to the plow. Don't turn back. We know very little about this man. He's only mentioned here and in the opening of Philemon. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So many think that Archippus may have been the son of Philemon, which could make sense. His name means master of the horse, which would seem to indicate wealth and status. And since Philemon seems to have had some a number of slaves, he probably was a man of wealth and status. So he may very well be the son of Philemon. We're not sure where he served, He may have been serving as a pastor to the Laodicean church precisely because he's mentioned right there in all of that discussion of Laodicea, the exchanging of the letters, the the thing about Nympha and the church there. So, And it says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry. So while he may have been born and raised in Colossae, he may now be serving in nearby Laodicea, or both places, since they weren't that far apart from one another. Paul encourages him to fulfill the ministry. Not that he received from Paul, but that he received in the Lord. So it is in Christ that Archippus has received what this ministry that he has. Whether or not he will faithfully fulfill that ministry remained to be seen at that time. We're not sure, even after this. But we know that God uses similar encouragement and warnings to preserve the faithful in the midst of their temptation. Think of it this way. If you're the pastor of a church in which false doctrine is getting a foothold, 
you're tempted to leave. The statistics, uh, statistics currently have men who graduate from seminary being in the pastorate for five years. There's a lot of guys that get weeded out in those first five years. <laughs> okay? And sometimes they go because they realize, man, ministry is really difficult. <laughs> Far more difficult than I ever could have imagined. And we need the encouragement to stay in it. When it's hard and when it rips your heart out and when it feels like it's going to crush you. And Archippus probably was feeling that as this church seems to be going the wrong direction. He's tempted to run. Some guys run because the church talks of, is, is struggling with the worship wars. All kinds of weird things. He may have been tempted to run. So he said, Paul says to him, fulfill the ministry you received. Stand firm. Keep running. Don't give up. Now, he may have continued to be faithful. And perhaps the problem was that the, 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 most of the people within the church in Laodicea were not entrusting themselves to Christ. A pastor can be incredibly faithful. But the message has to be heard with faith. And he can only give the message. He cannot judge how it is received. We see this particularly in Hebrews chapter 2 when it talks about how the gospel was preached to the Israelites in the wilderness, but they did not receive it because they did not believe it. It was not met with faith. And so the message, it's good to have good, solid preaching, but what also has to happen is it has to be met by faith on the part of the hearers. Not just that's nice, but I need that for my soul and I have to trust in the Christ that is being preached here. So the perseverance of the saints is not about the strength, the courage, the intestinal fortitude of the the members of the visible church. It is about Christ who preserves them through this vital union that He has with them as He helps them to walk the race to the very end. When, when members of a visible church walk away from Christ, we should be praying for them. We should plead for God's mercy for us as well because there's no temptation that we can't experience too. We have to be careful. We could fall the same way. As Hebrew says, let us encourage one another to trust in Christ, to love Christ. Above all things, let's pray. Father, I cannot help but sense the, the warning that is here. When we go beyond the snapshot at the end of this letter and look at sort of the, the movie of the lives of these people, help us not to deceive ourselves, Father. Father, But we ask that Your Spirit would give us wisdom as we read the Scriptures. The knowledge to be able to to know, to say, "I, I believe this, or I don't believe this. Make it clear where our faith lies. In ourselves or in Christ. 
have mercy on us and place our faith fully and completely in Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.